And our New Testament reading this morning comes from 1 Peter, the second chapter, uh, verses 18 through 25. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, you may. It's on page 237 in the New Testament section. During this time of Easter, we are continuing to, to read through 1 Peter and then reflect on how the first century church received this letter, um, how it um, affected them, but also what does it say for us today, this 21st century church? As we go um, to 1 Peter, I'm constantly surprised on how those words, how those letters continue to be so relevant some 2,000 years later. I invite you now to listen to God's word. Excuse me. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are dishonest. For it is a commendable thing if, being aware of God, a person endures pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do good and suffer for it, this is commendable thing before God. For to do this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit that was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but when he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe we didn't sound quite as confident today, seeing thanks be to God. We'll see what we can do with this passage this morning. This passage reminds me of a story I heard that took place in a Midwestern college campus that had a large body of Iranian students. It was back in the 1940s, back when the former Shah was disposed. The students demonstrated on the college administration building. The college president went out to speak to the students, demonstrating, and during the course of their negotiations, the president casually made the remark of something to the effect that, you look like a bunch of sheeps out here. With that, the students on this campus rampaged. They were breaking windows and threatening other students and destroying property. The president learned the hard way that in Iran, To call someone a sheep is a term of ugly mockery. Words matter. Context, the history, and words together matter. Our passage this morning begins with a difficult and challenging sentence. Slaves, accept the authority of your master. With all difference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also 
those who are harsh. These are the type of words when read alone, out of context, will make any of us want to stand up and protest, and rightfully so. These words have been used to harm people for years and years and years, including the abuse of young girls that are sold into sex trafficking today, as well as physical abuse to men and women and children within very own homes. Verse 18 is one thing to be read in the first context of the first century. But what do you do when these words, at the height of slavery in the United States, are read? 175 years ago, when the debate of slavery was raging, texts like these were pulled out of Scripture, pulled out of the Bible, and used in the sentence by themselves. When done that, the Bible seemed to be clearly on the slaveholder side. Abolitionists were hard pressed in to justify their opposition to the slavery when it came to the Bible. Interestingly enough, those opposed to slavery had to search for other sources of authority. And even more interesting is that their authority came from the slaves themselves, which then led these people against um, slavery to the question how do a people enslaved by those? people using this book to enslave them also come to accept this book as authoritative and legitimate. Vincent Wimbush says the most defensible explanation lies between the meeting of these two worlds, that world of an African-American and the world of the Bible, with all the Bible's arresting stories of the underdog surviving, and the conquering of a savior figure that was also beaten and spat on and arrested and lied about, but who also ultimately triumphs. And taking all that in consideration, there's little wonder that these groups of people came to embrace the Bible. African-Americans came to embrace the Bible after reading everything from the Israelites to the prophets to Jesus to that first church. All of those stories in the Bible, all of the stories when put together, appear to be similar to those stories of the historical experience of the African American. Barbara Limbaugh, a New Testament scholar, suggests for African slaves, the Bible itself became a witness against the very text that were used to oppress them. After all, Jesus himself said, all the law was summed up in the commandment to love God and love neighbor. And when that becomes the greatest commandment, then the texts that are used to demon and diminish God's love and our neighbor should be all be called into question. So let's question this text this morning. Why would the author of 1 Peter write such a sentence? 
why would he not just come out and dismiss slavery altogether? Now, granted, the word slave here is not the general one that we know through the history of our country, but the slaves of the first century were not exempt, not exempt at all to both verbal and physical abuse by their masters. I am not sure why this letter does not come out with strong language against this oppression. But this is what I do know. We, as people, are very slow. So we should all be careful to read and feel some type of superiority, as if we came out of our own baptism or we had some mountaintop experience, completely aware of all the freedoms of all the people. Accepting non-Jews was a problem for Peter and many others in the early church. It amazes me as someone who's born a little bit later, that women were not allowed to vote until the 20th century. It still amazes me that some denominations continue to fight over women leadership within their own church. And not to mention the injustice of African Americans and all the limitations placed on them as a population since this country was formed and continues today. In Howard Thurman's autobiography, he recalls the day that he uh, took his little daughters to Daytona Beach, where he had grown up. He, we sauntered down the long street from the church that I grew up in to that riverfront. This was the path, a procession that the baptismal ceremony took to the Halifax River. At length, we passed the playground of one of the white public schools. Schools were still segregated in the South at the time. As soon as we did, Olive and Anne and my two daughters saw the swings. They jumped for joy. Look, Daddy, look, let's go over there and swing. Dad, can we go over there and swing? You can't swing in the swings. Why, Dad? Let's just go over there and swing. Why, Dad? Well, when we get home and have some cold lemonade, I'll tell you why. Tis was the inescapable moment of truth that every black parent in America must face sooner or later. Sooner or later, as a Christian, we too must come face to face with these difficult passages. And as we do, coming with grace to one another, surprised and grateful for the signs of maturing, also humble by the distance yet to go, catches my attention is who the author is addressing in this passage. The author is not addressing the slave owner. The author is addressing the slave. This means that the slave, the lowest person in the household hierarchy, they're also included in the body of Christ. At first, this may seem obvious to us, but it was revolutionary in the first century church. And if we slow down, if we think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, it's equally revolutionary in our reactionary world today, a world where both political parties are yearning for the day of yesterday. The Bible never looks for the day of old. Instead, the Bible gives us hope for a new world. And by passing the slave owners and addressing the slaves, we are reminded that the life of Christians 
is determined not by this world, but determined by God. And who God includes and who God does not include. And what this is saying is that all are included. Meaning that this life that we live is not reactionary at all to the conduct or the attitude given by a lifestyle. Jesus said this very thing to us, slave or free, Jesus said to you and to me, to love the neighbor and to hate. You are not to love the neighbor and hate the enemy. You are not to speak to the friendly, but not, but not the unfriendly. You are not to be generous to the generous, but withhold from the selfish. This letter never suggests that suffering is a legitimate condition for those who are being beaten or abused or coerced or oppressed. Nor does it suggest that God's name be invoked. When you raise that hand, or words come out of our mouth to harm another. What Scripture is telling us is that there is an alternative way of living than the reactionary way that this world wants us to buy into. When we follow Jesus, we are then refusing to play in this reactionary game. Because when we follow Jesus, not this reactionary ways, but the world is often, First Peter says then, it's then that you may endure suffering. You may recall we left Howard Thurman with his two children, Olive and Anne, asking their dad why they could not play on that swing set. We got home and had that lemonade, and Ann pressed for the answer. We're home now, Dad. We're home. Oh, tell us now, why can't we play on the swing set? It's against the law. It's against the law? Yes, it's against the law for, those, for us to swing on those swings. Even though it is a public school, honey, it's against the law. Only white children can play there. But you know what? It takes the legis state legislator, the courts, the sheriffs, and the policemen, the white churches, the mayors, the banks, and the businesses, and the majority of the white people in all the state of Florida. It takes all of these to keep two little black girls from swinging on those swings. That's how important you are. Never forget the estimate of your own importance and self-worth can be judged by how much power people are willing to use to keep you in your place that they have assigned you to. When I look at it, you are two very, very important little girls. Sooner or later, our eyes will be open. We hear that voice of the shepherd Jesus calling us by our name for us to look up and see a room full of people, everyone from the slave owner to the slave and all of us in between. As we look up, what we hear is Jesus look at each one of them and say, you are important. You are important. You are important. You are important. So important. 
I died for you. So important that I've set you free. On February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela from the South African prison where he'd been held for 27 years was 72 years old. He'd been in prison. His crime was advocating and organizing and fighting for the freedom of his people against the apartheid policies and programs of South Africa government at the time. He was called a terrorist. He was in prison and was brutal at first. He, he was beaten. He was offered little food. Every day he was made uh, forced to go out and crush stones all day long. He was allowed no visitors, one letter in and one letter out per year. And finally allowed to read, write, and converse with other political prisoners, his thinking about freedom deepened, it broadened. He wrote, it was during those long and lonely years that my hunger for freedom of my people became a hunger for the freedom of all people, both black and white. I knew as well as I knew anything that the oppressor must be liberated, just as surely as the oppressed. A man who takes away another man's freedom is a prisoner of hatred. He is locked behind the bars of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. I am not truly free if I am taking away someone else's freedom. And perhaps this is the irony of Christian freedom. Freedom not defined by this world. Freedom does not mean that we get to misuse the words of others to better ourselves. Freedom does not mean we get to use scripture to put other people in their place or physical or verbal abuse of an individual for our own financial or social gains. Freedom does not mean we get to mistreat this very land that we walk on or the air that we breathe for our own enjoyment. Instead, freedom the freedom that the cross gives to you and to me is for us to be free of a reactionary world. This freedom shows us an alternative way to live. This freedom calls my name and your name out by our good shepherd. This is why we call Jesus good shepherd. Because Jesus works without resting, reminding you and me and everyone that he encounters, looking at every one of us, and he will not stop until we all hear it, that you are an important child of God, so important that you are free. That's the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd that calls us by name, that brings us all together in a fold. But we're also reminded that we are part of a community. But we are taught that every human being is a beloved child of God. The object of God's mercy and generosity and grace. That every human being is created in the image of God. And loved with everlasting love. When our good shepherd, the one we call Jesus, 
the one that we call our Savior. The one that we follow. Was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said some very words that can never be taken out of context, never been misused, or never be made to exclude anyone. He simply said, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.